So, um, this is, has been traditionally our FSF members meeting. And by the way, I'm Peter Brown, the Executive Director of the Free Software Foundation. So this is normally our annual members meeting. I know that most of you are, uh, here are members. Uh, this year we have opened up to, uh, to a bigger audience. Uh, and we also have a, a, a more eclectic group of speakers as well. And uh, I just wanted to cover off a few, few items for you before we get started. Um, we have a Floss Manuals book sprint going on. Um, so if you feel like uh, sharing some of your knowledge about uh, working on the command line uh, to help empower uh, newbies to GNU Linux, um, please spend some time uh, and uh, head over to room 109 and 112 uh, and uh, do some authoring. And uh, your name will be in a book that we will sell uh, from the GNU Press. Um, so LibrePlanet, what is LibrePlanet? Well, LibrePlanet is an idea that we've been percolating for a while, uh, and it's based around this concept that we're getting to a point where we have what we need to encourage our neighbor to adopt free software. We've been working hard to make sure we've had an operating system. We've been working hard to make sure there's hardware that works with free software. We're very close to a lot of these reality is becoming true. What we really need now more than anything else is to use our influence uh, and our connectivity to encourage other people to adopt and start using free software. Uh, I think a lot of people recognize that we're in an economic decline at the moment, and some people are saying, well, there's a great opportunity to talk about free software based upon economics, but I think more than anything else, what we want to try and do is with Libre Planet, Planet is encourage free software activists like you lot to... Uh, you know, to, to, to push forward free software based upon the values that, that we care about. That's being in control of the technology we use. Um, and that's really part of the reason why the, the book that we're doing in the book sprint is about the command line. It's about this idea of, you know, we've been encouraging people to click on things. Well, in fact, there's a great opportunity to say to people, well, yeah, that's great, but imagine if you could do more. And that's really what Libre Planets is all, all together about. We want to encourage people to be more in control and we want people to value the values of free software. So that's what Libre plans to start off today. We've got three main areas to talk about. Freedom for network services, Libre Planet activism, and uh, priority, high priority projects, free software projects. So uh, we've got some really great speakers. But first I want to introduce you to uh, uh, FSF's campaigns manager, Matt Lee. Uh, Tomorrow we're setting aside for something we call an open space event. Uh, the idea is that we want people here to help lead and play a major part in tomorrow's efforts to talk about those three topic areas. Each of us has some experience or expertise to share, and we want to come out of the open space event with some, some progress and real work. Uh, so it's, we've described this as a bit of a working conference. So uh, Matt's going to explain to you some of that stuff. But first of all, I just want to say thank you all so much, very much for coming along. And I also want to thank all the FSF staff for their hard work in making this event happen and look so good. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, Pete forgot to mention, actually, that uh, Rob Myers, the GNU Chief Webmaster, is also here. And... Uh, He's going to be helping me, well, I'm helping him lead tomorrow's event. So, uh, hand over to Rob. 
Hi, so tomorrow we've got three tracks. We've got track for free software activism, a track for high-priority projects, and a track for... What's the other thing? Free network services. Free network services. Absolutely. So at lunchtime, we're going to put three big whiteboards out in the hall, lots of sticky notes and pens, and if you've got an idea for something that you'd like to work on tomorrow, uh, let's have a meeting, have a hack sprint, just have an open discussion, or give a lecture on it. Write down your name, what you'd like to do, and put it on the relevant board. And then tomorrow morning, tomorrow morning. we're going to gather those up and schedule things out for during the day. You can also uh, nominate somebody else to talk, um, which, you know, could be kind of fun. Uh, if there's something you want to hear about that's not on that board, but you can't talk about it, but you really want to hear about it, put it down anyway. Some people have already added things like licensing to the list of things to talk about. So uh, if Brett's here somewhere, he may want talking about that. But uh, also the other thing to do is at the end of the day tomorrow, we're going to have these five-minute, like, super-fast lightning talk sessions. So if you have something to announce or something you've just started doing, or something you want to just say, like, is this a good idea? Is it a bad idea? You can announce it at those slots as well. So uh, an, there are actually enough slots here for every one of every two people here to give a talk. So uh, get talking. And I think now we're going to hand over to, uh, to John Sullivan, who is our uh, MC for the day. He's going to introduce the speakers. So, uh, again, lunchtime. Out in the corridor, big white boards. Enjoy. John. Hello. Thank you all for coming. Uh, I'm going to keep this short so we can get to the main attraction here. The first speaker this morning is Jeremy Allison, who is going to talk about the elephant that's apparently in the room here. Uh, Microsoft, a topic that he's very familiar with given his uh, groundbreaking work on Samba. And thank you for coming. Thanks very much. <laughs> so this, this is why I didn't have the slides up to start with. I didn't want to distract people. Um, so thank you very much for the introduction. Um, so when I was... Uh, I came up with uh, this uh, title for this talk... Um, I know we're all free software people, but sooner or later, you do have to talk about um, the elephant in the room, which is Microsoft. Um, because they are the world's largest software company, um, they do have a great effect. Their actions and activities have a great effect on, on what we do. Um, and so uh, I went Googling for uh, the right picture to use uh, for the uh, title slide of this talk, and I came across this, and for some reason, it, it struck a real chord. And uh, I, actually, I believe that's, that's Richard under there. Um, and uh, I, I must admit, I stood there and thought, can I get away with this? Can I get away with this? And then I thought about my audience and thought, yes, I can probably get away with this. So this is, this is almost certainly a talk I shall not be repeating in a public space. So, um, or if I do, I might heavily edit some of the pictures. Uh, and also I want to uh, add, um, I actually work for my day job at Google, so this is in no way associated with them, and uh, I wanted to make sure that people understood this was the perfectly delusional ravings of uh, someone who has been driven slowly but surely insane from working on interoperability with Microsoft software. Um, so why 
should we actually care about Microsoft at all? Um, things are very different now from the time in the um, mid to late 80s and, and early 90s, uh, when essentially uh, you really did have to use Microsoft software in many ways, unless you uh, escaped into Unix land, which wasn't really affordable for most people on personal computers, you really had to deal with Microsoft. But that's no longer the case. So here's an interesting question. Oh, and by the way, uh, don't um, let me stand up here and pontificate for an hour or so. Please ask questions, make this as interactive as possible. If you think I'm full of the stuff that I showed on the previous slide, please stick up your hand, let me know, argue. I can drill down into just about any topic that I have on the slides, uh, except for some which I will defer to further speakers. Um, but I am not a lawyer, even though I will be talking about some legal things. So uh, I, may, I may have to defer to some, uh, some lawyers if they're here. Uh, or otherwise, uh, I, ca I can drill down into many of the legal activities that have been going on, because I've been involved with quite a few of them. Um, I can't always tell you exactly what went on behind the scenes, but I can, I can try and get it close. Um, so, as I said, uh, GNU Linux is a perfectly wonderful operating system, and we simply don't need to run Windows anymore. Um, so why don't we just ignore them and, and, and let them do their own thing? So, by the way, how many people here actually still do run Windows for anything? Oh, that's, that's more than I would thought, have thought, actually. Um, my, my only sins are running the occasional piece of uh, proprietary graphics driver code, uh, because I'm a fan of uh, unbelievably violent first-person shoot-em-ups. <laughs> and so uh, I, I, do I, I won't run them on Windows anymore. I do run them on Wine, but unfortunately that means I have to commit the sin of loading NVIDIA drivers on my box. So, hey, so kill me. Um, but essentially... Uh, we really don't have to deal with Microsoft anymore. Our system works well enough, and hopefully, as we will find out later at this conference, is good enough so that anyone can use this without having to interact at all with Microsoft software. In fact, the dirty secret of the Samba team, and in fact, the cause of some of our regressions, which we're trying to fix, is that none of the Samba team members uses Microsoft anymore for anything. So we test against virtual machines in a test environment, but we don't need that software anymore. So uh, we, we've unfortunately moved out of the realm of scratching our own itch to we're actually scratching other people's itches, which is never quite as much fun. Um, and all, <laughs> you know, you have to wear rubber gloves and stuff. Um, because we, we simply don't care about Windows anymore. We don't need it. We don't run it. Um, so we, we could just leave them alone. And, and uh, I always regard it as... Seeing people complaining about Microsoft is like watching people wading in a sewer. It's kind of like, you know, you're walking on the sidewalk and you're watching them down there sort of digging their way through the filth and complaining about the viruses and whatever. And you're like, well, why don't you just get out of there? <laughs> you don't have to be down there. Um, so uh, James Bottomley, who's the SCSI maintainer in the Linux kernel, uh, actually came up with a wonderful analogy, which I'm not ashamed to completely steal here. He said, he said... It's interesting. If you look at the, the three most popular uh, operating systems, Windows is a prison, right? You know, you can see it. Everybody knows it. It's grim. The food is bad. The doors are made of metal. You know, there's no, there's no plastic on the toilet seats. You know, it, it's, it's grim. Um, Mac OS is kind of, it's still a prison, and this is what people don't get including you Mac users up there. I can see you. I don't think I can't. Um, I noticed on the way in. Um, 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I could see that from the login screen. Um, so, so Mac OS, it's still a prison. It's very nice. There are carpets on the floors, you know, there's plasma TV instead of windows or whatever, but you can't look out and see what you want. You're still watching the Apple channel um, whenever you look through those plasma t- uh, TVs. So um, Linux, GNU Linux, is really the only free system out there, and that's the one, obviously, we should be encouraging everyone to adopt for the obvious benefit. So, yes, we could just leave Microsoft alone. So why don't we? Why am I sort of here giving this offensive talk with a picture of an elephant at the beginning? Well, the problem. They don't, don't really want to leave us alone. Um, and I, I have hopes that this will change in the future, and I hope that this talk will end on a positive note. But right now, Microsoft's current business model is actually dependent on maintaining the monopoly on the desktop and extending it out into other places. Um, One must never forget Microsoft's mission statement. Um, They actually do tend to forget it these days. But the Microsoft mission statement uh, is a computer on every home and on every desk. And that's the bit that they quote quite freely, and they're very happy to say, look, look, that's our mission statement. But they often leave off the last part of the sentence, running Microsoft software. Uh, And that's their full mission statement, and that's the one that they believe wholeheartedly internally. Um, So Apple um, is, as I say, is tolerated and even encouraged, uh, although um, they may be a little upset about how much they're encouraging it these days. Um, But they really aren't allowed to become that much of a threat. Even even now, Apple, I believe, is less than 10% of desktops. Um, And if you remember the a massive jumbotron picture of Bill Gates appearing at the Apple conference and being booed when he was giving some some money in the days of the, the scully days at Apple. Um, they're kind of used by Microsoft as an antitrust to get out of jail free card um, for the various antitrust authorities. Uh, this has not been working so well of late. But the thing that we have to remember and that they know very, very deeply um, is that Free software, GPL-licensed free software, not all free software, but copyleft free software, is absolutely intolerable to them. Um, They can't cope with it. It doesn't fit in their business model. Um, It's completely outside their ecosystem. And you can see this uh, not from the friendly engineers that they send out to talk to conferences or whatever, but if you actually look at some of the antitrust um, documentations from the trial, where you actually get to look at what Microsoft's real feelings are internally, and um, the the one that surprised me uh, until I, I really tracked it down to an actual to the actual source, which is there on the slide, uh, was GNU Linux installations inside what Microsoft regard as their customers are called infestations, which is something that you would normally regard cockroaches, not uh, uh, not not competitors. Um, having said that, I have actually often compared free software to the cockroaches living in the walls, so maybe it's not so bad. Um, but s- emails like this and comments at very, very high executive levels are a sign that really they're not interested in peaceful coexistence and they ain't going to leave us alone. Uh, and in fact, I've had many experiences over the years to show that they really, really aren't intending to leave us alone. So I'll talk a little bit more about that. But, I mean, 
I'm sure you've all seen Sam Ranji doing Sam Ranji from Microsoft giving his wonderful talks, but don't they love us? You know, and I actually know Sam quite well, um, and he's a nice guy. Um, you know, he makes wonderful positive statements about open source and even free software on occasion. I believe that he is genuine in his tasks to change Microsoft to be a free software friendly company, and I encourage him in whatever way I can. Um, I'm probably going to give him a hard time next time I see him, but um, it's they, they have a definite distinction internally. They're very encouraging of free software under the MIT or BSD licenses, which they can appropriate into proprietary software. They are not so keen, as I've mentioned, on copyleft and other forms uh, of GPL software, which they can't. Um, I, I recently joked that the, the quickest, if you have a church fate or something that you're running and you want to get sponsorship, the quickest way is to add open source into the title and a Microsoft representative will, will turn up with a blank check to uh, offer you. We, we should probably call this the uh, open source Libra Planet or something and then Microsoft would be here sponsoring us and uh, <laughs> paying pay for some excellent coffee and free lunches and dinners and whatever. So uh, it really is the easiest. And, and you'll, you'll see this in many of these open source conferences um, I actually have Microsoft rep representation and, uh, and that's how they get a lot of their sponsorship. Um, so, uh, but but you, you actually have to give something up when you take that shilling, I'm afraid. So Microsoft is very often compared to the Borg. And I, I think this is, this is incorrect, actually. Uh, and I like to say, we're the Borg, not Microsoft. Um, because I, I, actually, we're a lot better and more efficient at assimilating technology into our collectives than they are into theirs. Um, for instance, for the longest time, most of their engineers couldn't even look at free software at all. I mean, they were, you know, it was a fireable offense to do that. Um, but I, I would argue that we're much, much friendlier than the Borg. Um, in that we, we, we turn up and we invite people to join the collective. It's, it's not so much of an either-or thing with a cube with a large energy weapon pointed at you. Um, it, it's, it's more sort of bearing gifts. Um, so they really aren't like the Borg. Um, so what actually is Microsoft and, and what is it like internally? Now, I've actually worked up at Microsoft um, back in the early 90s. Uh, and, and Microsoft is, is not what you think. You, you sort of, from the outside, you see Microsoft as this one monolithic entity, but it really isn't. Microsoft is actually a, best described as a series of continually warring tribes, and they hate each other. I mean, they really hate each other. They hate each other far more than they hate free software and, and we people externally. It's, it, it's like a family. You, you, know, you really hate the people in the family much more than you, know, you hate the outsiders. But whenever you're under a threat, they all pull together as a team. Um, but what happens internally is the various groups hate and despise each other. I mean, the, the thing that I came into contact with was how much the Windows new technology team despised the engineers who were working on Windows 95. I mean, they really regarded those people as, you know, um, dishwashers with computers, kind of. They, they you know, they, they really regarded them as, as stupid and couldn't code, etc. And all this, all this, and the Excel group hates the Word group, and they all hate the Access group, you know, um, and the... Uh, and the Exchange group hate, despises the file server team and actually codes Exchange so it won't even run off a Microsoft file server. And, you know, so you, you have all these complete hostilities. Um, 
But they use that internally to generate competition, to make each group work harder. And what this means is that their actual external actions are much harder to predict than you would expect because they don't always do things in rational self-interest or at least not what you would consider rational self-interest. It's in the rational self-interest of whichever group that is currently got the ear of the VP who's doing whatever it is that they appear to be doing, but it's not necessarily in the rational self-interest of the company as a whole. But as I said, the company as a whole isn't really uh, one whole company. Um, now, now Gates is gone, there is a lesser Khan Barmer running things, and, and boy, do they hate him. <laughs> they, they really want him out, but, uh, you know, being the co-founder, he's hard to dislodge. So, if you look back and um, see when Microsoft first became aware of free software, um, it was, I, I would probably date it to around 1998. Now, the Samba team had had contact with Microsoft and we'd worked with them as far back as, say, 1994, and they were actually incredibly friendly at that time. They paid Tridge, uh, Andrew Tridgell, who's the co-founder of Samba, um, to the, the original author, to go um, business class from Australia to Seattle for this first SIFS conference they ran. Um, you know, they, they, they used to fund us. They gave us documentation. Fund us in travel, not in actual um, pay for code. Um, but what you have to remember is at that time, they were competing very heavily against the entrenched Novell network. So it was in their interest to open their protocols as much as possible, to be friendly, um, you know, to help I interact with the free software community. Because uh, they saw us as interesting curiosities, sort of rather like creatures in the zoo that, you know, you throw a few peanuts to for amusement. Um, which we were, really. I mean, let's be honest. We <laughs> You know, we were doing this because we wanted to and having fun with it. We had no great dreams of world domination. You know, we were just writing code that we wanted to use because we, we needed it and we wanted to use it. Um, things had changed by about 1998. Network was defeated, completely in retreat. Windows NT had become dominant. Um, and at that point, we weren't so funny anymore. That's the, the Smiths song, that joke isn't funny anymore. And we were... Um, we were less encouraged at that point. And they, I, I, think, I think the change began um, from a little affair called the Minecraft benchmark, if anyone remembers this. And this was just after um, Herb Lewis, a, a Samba team member, and I were both working for SGI at the time. And we'd managed to, to coax IRIX, which was a very nice Unix at the time, to run um, Samba as a file server, something like twice as fast as Windows NT could serve um, Windows clients. Um, and we got a lot of press over that. And apparently, Mr. Gates walked into the file serving team, slammed down the paper and said, fix this. Uh, and so they began to be concerned about they actually had some, some more competition. Uh, and if you've read some of the early Microsoft documents, you know, Microsoft's feeling that their legitimate share of any market is 100%. So no competitor can be allowed to exist. So that's a very interesting read, and I, I read that going back to look, uh, for this talk. And one of the things that struck me in going, going through that, it's been a long time since I read it, was how all free software at that point, this was very unsophisticated thinking, all free software, including BSD, MIT, everything, was lumped in under the enemy, and, and what do we do about it? Um, interestingly enough, the author of that paper now works for a free software company, as this seems to be the fate of many Microsoft engineers. Uh, including some of the people who wrote Windows NT, because I work with them. Um, but um, 
All free software was considered a threat, and they were trying to decide what to do about it. So they came up with an interesting strategy, which um, they have pursued and are still pursuing to this day, although um, I'm going to examine what effects exactly it's had. Um, And so this, let me read this out for you. Decommoditized protocols and applications. Open source projects have been able to gain a foothold in many server applications, uh, Apache, Samba, etc., because uh, of the wide util- utility of highly commoditized simple protocols. By extending these protocols and developing new protocols, we can deny open source software projects entry into the market. And so this was the birth of the strategies behind Windows 2000 and what they did there. And so let me talk. This is the area that I'm most familiar with. So when they introduced Windows 2000, what they did was they took MIT Kerberos and corrupted it, essentially. They added uh, what's called a privilege authentication certificate pack field into the ticket-granting ticket, which they refused to document. A, patented, B, refused to document. Um, and then, uh, essentially, they tried as hard as they could to prevent any other Kerberos server from serving Kerberos, legitimate Kerberos tickets to Windows clients. But they did this in an incredibly sophisticated way because what you have to remember is that Microsoft uh, is incredibly smart. They're full of very, very smart people. They're not dumb. And you have to realize what kind of a a threat you're dealing with. They um, actually allowed MIT Kerberos servers to serve tickets to Windows clients, but without the privilege authentication certificate, there was no way each of those clients was essentially an individual workstation. So what that meant is you would have to manage the accounts on each individual Windows machine. So every individual Windows machine would be able, would have to have full account details of anyone who wanted to log in, which, of course, completely defeats the purpose of having Kerberos in the first place. Um, it, it shares the authentication, but you can't manage the users in one place. Um, so what they did, essentially, if you're familiar with the Linux world of PAM and NSS, was they split out NSS from PAM, and they made the PAM part work with MIT Kerberos servers, but they deliberately obfuscated the uh, NSS part. And the, another way they did this was to commingle commodity protocols. So Active Directory is a, a mixture of LDAP, Kerberos, DCRPC, DNS, all of these things all of which were not developed at Microsoft, all of which are commodity protocols, fully documented, but they mingled them together in such a way that clients were unable to use those services independently from non-Microsoft implementations. And the way they did this was, so for instance, clients would query services in a particular way, one after the other, some of which were expected to fail. If they didn't fail with the correct error messages, the clients would assume that they were not talking to a Microsoft server and then refuse refuse to continue. So it was extremely sophisticated. And, And this is one of the reasons that Samba 4 is so late and so hard to do, because that that the technical decisions they made there are still here to this day and still have to be obeyed. Their clients have not changed. Uh, one of the other things that they did was extended the ability of mail protocols. Um, and so rather than, to, to their, um, being honest here, some of the protocols that they needed to do calendaring were not available at the time that they developed this software. But rather than working 
with standards groups to develop them openly, sort of CalDAV and WebDAV or whatever, they completely invented their own protocol running on top of DCRPC, remote procedure calls, um, that I believe to this day they have not documented, although um, it, they, they may have documented that one. I, this is not my uh, particular technical area, so I would have to go look at their documentation. Um, the other thing that they did, and you will have noticed this when you have single sign-on to Microsoft IIS service servers and not to Apache, at least until we, we fixed this, they extended standard HTML by adding a proprietary authentication protocol, HTML. And this all was incredibly successful. It really was for them. Um, so... They continued to do this, and for a while, I, I believe the open internet was in danger um, because the monopoly position of the Windows client and the fact that everybody codes for it really, at one point, was... It, I, I think it was a, a, in the balance that the internet would be essentially become a closed Microsoft bulletin board, essentially. Uh, internet only, uh, Internet Explorer-only HTML ren rendering, all of the browsers denied... Um, ActiveX plugins for authentication and government national security. I mean, look at Korea, for instance. You still can't get onto many Korean government websites or use much of the internet infrastructure in Korea without the correct ActiveX plugins, which, of course, freezes out every other competitor in the market. Um, and I believe that someone just lost a lawsuit in Korea um, over that very fact. So Korea is, is captured completely. There's no way for them to get out. Um, and the more modern attacks are Silverlight um, to attack, which is currently proprietary. Uh, well, hopefully we're going to hear more about that later, uh, the flash video format. And uh, the standardization, i.e. paying people to make them ubiquitous, of the Windows media formats in place of open ones. And this, this came out in the European Union antitrust trial with Microsoft. Microsoft would go to broadcasters and they would essentially they would pay them to replace real media streaming with Windows media streaming um, in order to, to capture that market. Um, so how it's worked in, in, in practice. Um, this is... Now, I'm going to sort of talk about three separate cases. Case number one, uh, which is the workgroup server market. And as I mentioned, they've commingled the protocols. And what they're trying to do here is leverage their client monopoly into a server monopoly. And they're kind of winning in, in many cases. If you look at the authentication market now, there isn't a single organization that doesn't have Active Directory in there somewhere or other. Um, and it used to be... Uh, I think Novell's eDirectory had a 30% share, Active Directory had 40%, and then um, Sun's NIS and other Unix had the, had the rest. Um, now it's probably 18 to 90% Active Directory. They've won this market. They really have. Um, and we managed, Samba managed to catch up reasonably quickly to do Windows NT4 domain controllers, which were just based on the DC RPC protocols, which is the Samba 3 timeline. Um, but the complexity of what they did with Active Directory means that we have yet to catch up there. And so they, they really, this, this is probably their most successful attack. But then let's look what actually the results of that was. And the results of it were a couple of lawsuits. Well, they, the, uh, uh, the U.S. lawsuit um, was actually about uh, browsers, so I'll, I'll mention that later. But the real effect, the one that they lost badly, was the EU case. 
And that was actually brought originally by Sun. And everybody else piled in. Real Networks piled in with a complaint. Novell piled in. Everybody jumped on that bandwagon. And it, it was actually, interestingly enough, it was Sun that invited the Samba team to participate. Um, I, I took a bunch of Sun lawyers out for a very nice Indian meal in, in Cupertino, which uh, they, they weren't used to. And uh, they actually said, will you help us with this? And, and I, I still remember that my comment to the lawyer, and I said, I said, okay, we'll help you, but, you know... We'd seen what had happened in the Department of Justice lawsuits. We said, but you have to be in this for the long haul. If you take the money and walk away, then you will have achieved nothing. You know, you, this will have been pointless. And sort of about four or five years later, when Sun took $2 billion to walk away, <laughs> I emailed that lawyer and said, do you remember? Um, and I never got a reply. Um, funny that um, and, and that people forget but that lawsuit nearly collapsed because every single participant in that lawsuit was bought off everyone the only one that really remained it, it, even the, the computer industry association um, was, was bought off and the, uh, the head of that got I think 20 million in payoff you know for accepting to settle on behalf of his members um Samba and the European Free Software uh, Europe were the only people who were there. And uh, as I joked at the time, it's because we couldn't be bought off. <laughs> it's, it's not that we didn't want to be. It's, <laughs> it's that we didn't. Because, <laughs> hey, you know, I mean, let's be honest, $2 billion, right? Yeah, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about my own island there. Um, but we don't own the code. We can't be bought off. We, we're representing the people who wrote the code. We have nothing to sell to them. Um, and so we, we actually won that case, and we won the appeal of that case. And the appeal, although um, that was not... Um, the, the judge who, who wrote the opinion on the appeal retired later, and I believe that the appeal was much, much closer than people think. I believe it was like a seven to six um, decision. It was a very, very close decision, uh, with the judge writing the opinion being the deciding vote. So they nearly won that one. Um, but years later, it, it was, it was a, a bad legal loss. Um, so the long-term results of that, um, mixed. This is probably their most successful strategy that they've, they've achieved. So they still, as I've said, they still dominate the workgroup server market. But in doing so and concentrating so much on authentication, it's, it's like playing whack-a-mole or, you know, you, you hit, hit the cockroaches one place and they come out from behind the cooker, you know. Um, they took their eyes off the ball in the appliance, the server appliance area. And that's where a lot of the money is. So this allowed the rise of companies like EMC, NetApp, who sell an awful lot of simple file service, not authentication. Uh, they don't compete with Microsoft in the dangerous area, which is authentication. Uh, and in fact, uh, I always joke that any, any file server appliance that costs less than $5,000 is guaranteed to be running Samba inside it. In fact, it's quite funny. It, it, it's sort of like any file-serving appliance that costs less than 5000 or more than 250000 is running Samba. Because <laughs> IBM have this unbelievable product they call Scale-Out File System, which is built on a clustered Samba that sort of scales. They can saturate 10 gigabit Ethernet with it. Um, but they, I mean, you know, they'll charge you millions of dollars for this thing. So it's like we, we dominate both ends. The middle is the... Uh, not so much. Um, 
But very few people buy generic Windows file servers anymore. They buy Windows authentication servers, they buy Windows clients, but they buy generic file serving appliances. So, yeah, it was like, as I said, whack-a-mole. You hit it somewhere else, we pop up somewhere. We, we hit it one place, we pop up somewhere else. The other thing that really cost them, well, A, they got hit by a huge fine, a fine that was large enough that it tipped, it caused currency traders to speculate on the value between the EU and the dollar on the, on the day that that got announced, because they knew that Microsoft would have to scramble to find a bunch of euros. Um, and the other thing that is still hurting is that they were forced to document the proprietary protocols, completely and fully document, which they are doing in good faith. And the thing that I think probably cost them, will cost them longer in the long run than the fine is the ongoing effort. They have to fund an entire engineering team to do this. And much of that work, and I know because I've been watching them do it on the mailing lists, is uh, forensic work. Because the people who worked at Microsoft who wrote that code have gone and bought their own private islands by now. Because, um, you know, they rode the stock up in the 90s. Uh, nobody's left who knows how that code works. Uh, and so you, you have to have people who go in and do code forensics to find out what error messages are uh, created for certain things. And the other thing that really hurt them is prior to that, they really had um, a very, very high reputation as a company. And this, I think, was the first real public awareness that, hey, these guys are a bunch of scumbags. Um, perhaps not as much as the bankers or AIG, but... Um, or actually, it's Goldman Sachs who are the ones who are getting paid behind all this. But, um, but they, really, they really took a massive hit on their reputation for this. And the other thing, because as I said, they're incredibly smart, they realized that trade secrets are not an adequate defense. Trade secrets fail. They get worked out, they can be reverse engineered, although I, that's not what we did, and I, I hate that word because it's, it's a very bad word to use in the US. We, we like the term network analysis. Um, but it, it means that it's not, well, because we don't disassemble their code, we just look at the network, you see. But what it means is that this is not an adequate defense against their, their real competition, which is free software. So case number two, and uh, there was a wonderful quote in the press recently from Linus Torvalds, who, about the OOXML thing, where he said, anyone who was involved in that had to be insane. That was a horrible mess. Well, I can proudly say I was involved in that. <laughs> and yes, I am insane. Um, so, so the genesis behind this was that um, Sun's Open Office product, and also backed by IBM and their Symphony product, they standardized a document file format called ODF, which is actually quite sane, because I had to read both these standards as part of this, this effort. Uh, and this is actually quite a sane standard. Um, it's not great, nothing, it's not perfect, nothing is, but you could actually handwrite ODF files, um, you know, in, in Emacs, for instance. You could, you could sit down and write a, a, an ODF file that would be read perfectly adequately by any of these word processors. I don't think you could do that with Microsoft's OOXML. Um, so they, they pushed to get, uh, because ODF was standardized through ISO, Microsoft have a, a captured organization called ECMA that essentially is a puppet organization that dances. Uh, and they have a fast track into ISO. Uh, it's a little more complex than this, but I'm, I'm, I'm giving you the raw... I, I'm, I'm filtering out all the polite stuff and I'm telling you what really happens. Microsoft says, ECMA, push this through, ECMA, push this through. 
Uh, and they tried to push through a 6,000-page specification in less than a year through ISO. Now, if any, has anyone here actually done any work with ISO? Yeah, so uh, you know, it, essentially that's like trying to, um, I don't know, it's like trying to eat an elephant in one sitting. It's, it's very hard <laughs> to do. Standards bodies don't move that fast. Um, so what it resulted in was a massive corruption of the standards process. Uh, all, all the major competitors rallied against them. Um, and there was an incredible public opposition in the standards community and, and the people surrounding it. Having said that, they still won. Now think about that for a second. The entire free world, as it were, was rallied against them. With every, every resource, the resource of Google, IBM, Oracle, you name it, they still won. That's how powerful they were. Um, it, so I, I, I know a lot of incredibly dirty stories about this um, process, some of which I believe border on illegality, but nobody can prove anything. This is always the way. Um, but I will tell you one example of how this was done. So uh, an African nation who shall not be named... Um, decided to become a voting member on office file formats, um, which is their right. And the reason they did so was, and of course they voted yes on OOXML. And the reason they did so was because a bunch of Microsoft partners funded a free training seminar in XML file formats focused directly on OOXML. And they ran this free training seminar for a month or two, and then they went to the government and they said, um, we want to standardize Office file formats, um, and we think you should have a standards organization, yeah, standards, your standards body should do this. And look, here's a committee of people who know a lot about this. <laughs> look, because we, we just trained them. Isn't that convenient? Um, so essentially, I, I, and, and the reason they can get away with this, of course, is because nobody else was putting, and you, you can't blame the government for do, that government for doing this, nobody else put money into their computing infrastructure, nobody else offered to give them free computers and a, a computer lab for their universities, um, you know, so why wouldn't they take this? Um, it, it's only sensible for them to do that. But this is, that's not corruption, but it's incredibly unethical, I think. Um, and so they did win. They did get this through um, by corrupting the ISO, who, who as, I, as one of the no-OXML people, created this wonderful ISO logo, of, as it should now be, MySoSoft. Um, but it kind of backfired in that governments began to actually take notice of office file formats and the fact that they were creating billions of documents that they couldn't necessarily read without paying a tax. And I believe, I believe Massachusetts had something to do with that. Um, which I, I'm sure you have your own little dirty stories about. Um, so the long-term result of that, I would say it's poor for Microsoft. That was, even though it was technically a win, I, I think that was a loss, um, really. They still own a monopoly in Office productivity suites. Everyone still buys Office. It's still, they still make a massive fortune from it. However, it stirred up the EU again. Never a good idea. The EU's get, beginning to get pissed with them. Um, so... One of the results of the EU starting to investigate uh, Office file formats in, in Microsoft Office is Microsoft suddenly said, oh, we're going to support ODF inside Microsoft Office. Now, it remains to be seen how complete or good that implementation is going to be. Early results that I've heard are that it's extraordinarily poor. What is the price? Yeah, question. No, I love. 
like as I recall, the, the original reason that they wanted to memorize Microsoft OS oh, ML uh, yes, so uh, uh, that, that's an interesting comment. Are they, well, the, I, I believe what they said was not that it couldn't be implemented, but that ODF wasn't, quote, rich enough to uh, document the full horror of the uh, Microsoft <laughs> Yeah, question. Now, isn't the implementation of ODF in um, Microsoft Office, isn't that a plugin that Sun made? Yes. Okay, so the, the, the comment was, isn't the ODF um, implementation in Microsoft Office a plugin that Sun made? Actually, no, not the one that Microsoft is coming out with. So there is uh, an ODF plugin into Office that Sun made. It can't do everything, and the reason for that is, and I know this is going to be a terrible surprise to you, there are hidden APIs within Office that, um, yeah, that, that's, that nobody else knows how to use. Um, but Microsoft is actually coding this up from scratch. And so one of the things that I, I think we need to examine very closely when this comes out, and to give them a lot of bad press over is that their current ODF implementation, for instance, doesn't handle spreadsheet formulas at all, or at least it, it puts, I, I believe it puts the spreadsheet formulas in a completely different um, XML namespace so that they can't be read and used by OpenOffice. So um, what they will have is an ODF plugin that actually is less interoperable than the Cleverage plugin that they funded as free software and the Sun plugin that, that Sun did you know, to prove it could be done. So uh, we need to point that out. Um, the, other, the other reason I think it was a failure for them is that they had complete binary lock-in, .doc, .xls, um, .ppt, were their formats, and they were essentially a memory dump of Microsoft Office. And nobody could implement them. They could change them at will. As part of this episode, they were forced to completely and fully document those formats. Uh, that was, I think, a significant loss for them. Now, admittedly, much of that was already worked out by OpenOffice, but as part of claiming that OOXML was open, people said, well, it doesn't cover the legacy binary formats, so they actually opened the legacy binary formats. They would not have done that had they not been pushed. And the other thing that's happened is many more governments, and I, I believe Texas state government um, is, is the latest one of... Uh, now, that's not going to pass because it's Texas, but... Um, uh, and it is raised by a Democrat in Texas, so it's got no chance. But uh, there, are, there are actually bills appearing, like in Massachusetts, suggesting open file formats. Um, and OOXML doesn't really fit that. Right now, not even Microsoft Office implements the OOXML. So case number three, and I think this is the one that they've probably fared the poorest on, was corrupting the open Internet. And as I said, for a time, this was a real threat um, you know, it, it looked like they might win this. They were refusing to follow HTML standards, i.e. only websites, which there are still many of today. Windows media format um, was becoming dominant. Um, .NET was a fairly thinly disguised effort to destroy Java. Uh, and he's even creeping into the GNU Linux in, um, system, which kind of worries me a little. Um, it didn't worry me until the TomTom -tom lawsuit, but... Um, and the other thing that they're trying to do is uh, they're attempting to dominate. Now, if somebody can come up with words of power, right? Microsoft has, has this concept of what they call rich Internet applications, and I, I really despise and hate that word. But I, I, I can't think of any other really good way to describe the sort of complex 
applications that you... If anyone could come up with a better word that we can use than rich, because that, that really is adopting the language of the competition. Anyone who, who listens to Fox News knows what a, ba- how, what a bad idea that is. Um, because he who controls the language... Sorry? Bloated. Bloated. Uh, Yes, bloated doesn't. Bloat is a nice idea, but unfortunately, it, it, they do have some positive connotations, and bloated doesn't really carry those positive connotations. Um, so, so we have to find something that, that has both positive and negative connotations. Um, yeah, who, who controls the language does does control the uh, the conversation. So, um, so why I think I've, they failed on this one? It, it's a, results an ongoing battle, but I think they're going to fail. Um, Firefox really broke open the IE-only HTML problem. Uh, and, of course, they rattled the EU's cage again. Um, and Ajax applications now. Yeah, comment. Uh, the proprietary browser Opera also was doing a lot to break that open before Firefox. So the comment was that the proprietary browser Opera was also doing a lot to, to break that open. Um, yeah, but the problem is Opera has, like, 2% market share. Um, you know, it, it has, if you look at all the statistics, it, it, it barely scratches the surface. It, it's not... So, yes, I mean, Opera were behind the EU case, definitely, uh, and Firefox probably wouldn't have instigated that. Um, so I'm grateful for, to Opera for that. But as a, an actual competitor in terms of breaking open the market, Opera was, was an irrelevance, really. Firefox, I think, is... Because, I mean, Firefox in some European countries is up to 20 30% now. Uh, probably not in the U.S., um, but it, it really is beginning to break open um, the IE-only web. Uh, and the other thing that, that they didn't uh, reckon on was the Flash video format, which is beginning to crush the old Windows media format files because it's, it's a better streaming format. Although, you know, this, again, is, this is a proprietary application, and I'm hoping Rob well, there will tell us much more about this later on because, you know, I, I was really hoping you were going to be in the audience for this slide because I'm thinking, God, I know nothing about this. I need someone who does. Um, yeah, well... <laughs> Please do. And I, I, I believe you're giving us a talk on that later on, so which I'm looking forward to. Yeah, not as much detail. Okay. Um, well, there's no detail here either. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, but the thing to remember is that, is that this isn't really good for free software either. And Silverlight is... Oh, we've got a question there. So, uh, Ajax, I uh-huh. mentioned that the X in Ajax is an Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So, so the comment was that the X in Ajax is actually a Microsoft invention. I didn't say they were all bad. <laughs> you know? <laughs> they, they do some good things. Um, that was a good thing. Yeah, I, I agree. And there was a comment there. Yeah, I suppose it's the right slide to ask you since you're, since you're wearing your Google hat. I, I, I came up with a, a phrase last night that the plain, the plain GPL is the new BSD and Google is the new Microsoft. Uh, the slide of talking about this, these issues Google is really the bigger threat of, of on, on the Ajax issue and the rich application space than Microsoft. Is. I'm going to take the fifth on that. Because <laughs> <laughs> somebody here is going to report back to my boss. I just know this. So, um, <laughs> so it's um, uh, as I said, Microsoft doesn't control the server here. This this is harder for them to win. Uh, I actually am mentioning this. Ah, yes. So my prediction for this long term is fail on this one. 
um, for Microsoft. I think this is the first one that they're going to really get a black eye. IE8 is not going to regain the past glories of IE6, um, including the proprietary mess. Um, Silverlight may... What I'm really hoping is that pressure from Silverlight from Microsoft is going to force Adobe to completely open up Flash and make it free software friendly. Well, Oh, okay. Well, as of last week, it's it's sort of like go swivel, but but let's see what happens when Microsoft bribe a lot more media corporations to go to go silverlight or you know because remember I know absolutely nothing about Google's internal processes. I'm free software facing or whatever. So if Google adopted silverlight for something, I mean at that point you might find Adobe coming to the table really damn quickly. Of well, okay, maybe free software is not such a bad idea. Um, but this is kind of politics. So the move to cloud computing, as, I, as Bradley points out, will further rest control away from Microsoft. But this is not good for free software. And this is where the ATPL, I think, is increasingly important. And you know, we should support it as much as possible. So, ah, question. Uh huh. Oh, that's cool. So, so oh, sorry. Yeah, and I know that Adobe, the new CS4 upgrade, has just created all these new, um, for one thing, they remix the codes and make it work faster on your machine. And they also added a lot more um, tools and fast ways of SDG. Right. So, um, with all these new, like, online gaming reality, virtual world type environments, big world emerging environments, um, what do you I'm wondering if Apple isn't going to turn around and buy it. Huh. So, so the, the, the change the face. Yeah. Of, I mean, I, oh. I think IE8 is not going to make it. Yeah. Really yeah. So, so the comment is that SVG might be the tipping point that pushes people away from IE8. Yeah, um, yeah because uh, I, I don't, I don't know about Apple buying Adobe because Apple is is. Uh, Apple, Apple in the position of Microsoft terrifies me because Apple, uh, Apple is, uh, you know, Apple is the Borg in terms of <laughs> they're one unified. Um, uh, well, uh, uh, and they hate each other, which which is which is good for us, <laughs> I think. Yes. So, so um, as I point out, trade secrets have, don't work anymore. Uh, the antitrust authorities are really breathing down the neck. Um, standards are gaining traction in the world. So, you know, what the hell are they going to do? Well, what do you always do in a game when you're back against the wall? You push the button. Yes. <laughs> you go for the nuclear option. Or as I like to call this slide, global thermonuclear monopoly. Um, so, patents. So patents are a big problem. Uh, and in fact, as I, I don't know how many of you know this, but Bill Gates actually believes that patents were a massive problem. In 1991, he understood perfectly, and in fact, he was quoting, and I, I was amazed by this uh, when I went back and read these references, again from the Microsoft Antitrust case notes. Um, he, was actually, he was actually quoting here from a, a um, document produced by the League for Programming Freedom, if anyone remembers that, um, which was the first anti-patent organization associated with the FSF. So Bill Gates was a fan. Of course, probably never gave us any money, but, you know, um, he understood completely the danger that software patents would cause to Microsoft uh, and to software in general. Of course, the view now is somewhat different. 
Um, we live in a world where we honor and support the honoring of intellectual property, the weasel word of our time. Uh, they're going to have to play by the same rules as the rest of business. What's fair is fair, which really does sound like a petulant child to me, but that's, that's just me. Um, and then, of course, there's the more hard-nosed, well, open-source software violates 235 Microsoft patents. Okay, which ones? Well, they finally showed us one of them, which was the TomTom one. Um, so, so why are they finally turning to the nuclear option? And I, I think this is an admission of failure. Um, and they finally have a strategy that they think, I think, will work against copyleft and GPL software. Because they patents and patent licensing agreements have the benefits to them of being completely incompatible with GPL and copyleft, but completely ignored by, well, let's be honest here, dumbass licenses like MIT and BSD. Um, so by making patent threats, uh, they are really giving two options. And they have been doing this for years. Uh, don't ask me how I know this, but I do know this for a fact. What they do is they go around to a company that's using GPL software, and they say, nice products you have there. Um, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that be a shame if you violated some of our patents? And company X says, well, what patents? And Microsoft says, well, we could tell you that, but then if you violate and we win, it's triple damages. So why don't you just sign a license under these very reasonable terms, which include violating the GPL, um, and let here, let's not upset those nasty free software people who make a fuss. Let's do it under an NDA. And they have been doing that for years, and there have been many companies who've signed up to that. Um... So what this is, is an attempt to split our community. Um, and, you know, I have some personal experience with this. Um, people who do patent cross-licenses are, are splitting the community. And I, I know they feel very sorry about it now, and they're trying to make amends, but... Um, very old, cynical, smart corporations like IBM and HP... They also do cross-licenses with Microsoft and many other companies of patents. But they do not include free software. And that's the difference. Um, they're still done under NDA, but they're not. They do, the cross-licenses that they have, I don't know about some, but IBM to HP, and HP, they do not include free software in their patent cross-licenses, which is why you know, they're still good members of our community. Um, and so the interesting thing is, and we will not know this unless there's another antitrust suit and a bunch more stuff gets released um, under evidence laws, but many other companies have agreed to things under NDAs, and we don't know what they are. And my guess is that many of them are, in fact, violating the GPL here. So the TomTom -Tom lawsuit, let's get up to date. Of course, you know... No one is the good guys here because TomTom -Tom have turned around and cross-sued Microsoft over violating their patents. So, I mean, patents just... I mean, let's be honest. Patents just kill people, all right? <laughs> I know they're medical patents, but in general, patents are a very bad thing. Um, so there are workarounds for the violations in GNU Linux, um, FAT file system. Tridge actually came up with some interesting ones. You can make it do it read-only. TomTom -Tom don't actually need to make it read-write. But... 
the landmark for this one, because TomTom can get out of this, uh, at least on the free software side, relatively simply, is this is the first openly aggressive move that they've made. This is the first time they, they you know, they did the, they shot the missile over the borders kind of thing. They, they made the first aggressive move. And my guess is, looking at the Microsoft Warring Tribes model, the, it, the legal department thought this was a good idea, wrested control of Balma, and finally said, yeah, we're going to do something about this. And the, the open source guys are probably going, oh, my God, what did they do? Because um, they've just wrecked every single one of Sam Ramjini's guys' outreach efforts. Um, they, they've, so w- w- there's a war within Microsoft over this, I'm sure. Um, as a little aside, actually, this slide doesn't kind of fit here, but I couldn't think of anywhere else to put it, so probably should have moved it back a bit. Um, the netbook war. Um, the, uh, the, the last front that they're opening is um, really on netbooks, which, were, which was a, a um, product that came out of the blue that they really didn't expect. And I, I think we started out with more than 10% market share. We're down, now down, down to 10% market share. And they are aggressively moving to quash this market for GNU Linux. And the way they do it is, yeah, you can offer GNU Linux, but it's not going to be prominent on your website. You're going to have to sort of go down the stairs, open the file cabinet in the locked door mop, beware of the leopard, before you can submit a web form to to buy a a GNU Linux netbook. Um, Because they no longer use... The, uh, what was determined illegal in the first antitrust case in the, 90s, in the 1990s in the US, which were the per-processor uh, licensing agreements, which they used for DOS. Now what they do is co-marketing dollars, which is like, well, you know, your advertising is very expensive. We could help offset some of that, you know, which is why this talk, for instance, recommends use of Microsoft Vista for all your business needs, you know, so, um, as you will find on, you know, even the web pages advertising, you know, GNU Linux systems, you'll find, oh, we recommend the use of, because they have to put that crap on there, because that's how they get the co-marketing dollars, which, you know, in the cutthroat business of um, PCs, they depend on. So, netbooks, mobile phones, and appliances are really the breakout markets that we're in right now and winning, and I, I think this is where there's going to be the most conflict um, between Microsoft and, and the free world. Um, so, what are our options? Because I'm kind of running out of time here. What are our options to the elephant in the room? Um, ah, yes, somebody's waving something at me. I have no idea what it means, but I'll hurry up. Uh, so, our, our first option is to ignore it, which actually is a pretty good option. So, you know, we've created a wonderful system. Uh, it's running everything that you're watching now, which is, you know, I've, I've seen worse presentations at Microsoft conferences. So. Um, so we should just keep creating and sharing free software and free content under our licenses. And, and to be honest, in the long run, this is how we will win. We, we mustn't concentrate on the competition too much. We have to keep doing what we're good at. Keep our eyes on the prize, as they say, uh, and, and create a free software world and make others, you know, communicate with others that they can share this world with us. Basically, extend a helping hand to get them out of the sewer. Um, the other thing that we can do, which I also think is important, is we can corral the elephant, uh, which is harder because elephants are, you know, kind of heavy and hard to corral. But if we can keep up, and, and this is where lobbying organizations and the anti-patent stuff in the EU works, is keep pressure on governments to adopt open and uncorrupted standards and to keep investigating monopolies and to help out as much as we can. 
And, and transparency and openness are really what we need here. As I, as I put it, elephants do like to work in the dark. I, I remember going to a, a set of government meetings um, about open standards, uh, which Microsoft were there, and they, they kind of put up a completely token presence. They turned up, they sort of read a statement, and they left. And I was like, wow, that was great, we won! And I, I, I spoke to someone who was a little older and a bit more cynical than me, and I, I told him what happened. He said, he said yeah, you know why? He said, they already had their meetings with the government officials before you turned up. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, yeah, they probably did, didn't they? Yes. So uh, they do like to work in the dark. Um, and this one is really important because this is the thing that could sink all of us. Software patents. Um, just lobby against them wherever they are in, uh, proposed. Uh, they are an evil and they must be destroyed. Um, you know, to, to quote uh, one of the Roman senators, and we should plow salt into their fields. Uh, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, and we have to keep the U.S. patent system out of the rest of the world, which is kind of hard because you know, the U.S. is busily trying to push its patent system around the rest of the world. Um, but I believe, actually, patent trolls are our friends here because uh, I, I was once in a very long phone call with some lawyers for a very large company, and we were talking about software patents and how worried we were. And at the end of it, one of the lawyers finally got annoyed with me and said, Look, you idiot! You're not in any danger from software patents. You haven't got any money. <laughs> nobody's going <gonna, laughs> to sue you. They're going to sue us. <laughs> oh, yeah, kind of, yeah, that's where the money is. Um, so, so patent trolls tend to sue Microsoft because that's where the money is. So, you know, eventually they've got to balance that the patent trolls are going to be more damaging to them than the defense that they get out of threatening us with patents. Um, so I, I still have the hopes that they will eventually um, see sense on that. Uh, so the way we respond is prior art. I mean, we have the community out there to do this in a distributed way. Grotlaw proved how it could be done with a SCO case. Um, just destroy any patents that they pop up over the puppet, any patents that we can't destroy, rewrite. Um, it's, if you've actually read any software patents, they're incomprehensible. And it's, it's very hard to write a patent that you can't actually work around. It's not impossible. You can either knock them down or work around. The trouble is this is very expensive to do. Um, so the thing to do is anyone who pops up with these dumbass patents, um, like the TomTom one, for instance, is to knock them down as quickly as possible and, and make them understand that the more they do this, the more they will lose what they consider their valuable intellectual property. Uh, and the other thing I, I mean, I'm going to personally do is I'm going to get a beef with Sam Ramji because he's a nice guy, but I'm not going to let him behind, hide behind company skirts on this one. And, you know, I'm not going to be nasty or anything, but I'm going to say, look, Sam, you're full of shit. Sorry? <laughs> you know, you say all these things and you mean it, but look what your bosses do. Um, and, you know, working for a company like that is an individual moral choice. And, you know, hey, maybe someone else is still hiring. Um, and eventually, if they lose enough good free software people, because they do have some good free software people inside, they will realize that this kind of aggressive tactic is counterproductive on their own employees. So I'm going to end on a positive note. So uh, elephants can learn new tricks, and eventually, and this might take, us a, take a while, but I, I don't see it impossible that we'll have Microsoft engineers and representatives sat in an FSF general meeting you know, ah, I have five minutes, but I'm finished already, so we've got questions. Um, question, there, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. 
So, so Neely Krauss is the uh, EU antitrust commissioner. There were two points there. So asked about Neely Krauss leaving. Uh, I didn't know about that, so that's news to me. Um, I, I thought Neely Krauss was doing a great job in the EU antitrust. I hope that it depends who they hire to replace to replace Neely. If they reply, if they hire a Microsoft exec, which is you know possible given the politics of, of governments, then I, I think that would be a bad thing. Um, so it really depends who replaces her. But I think I think she set up the EU on a track that I, I hope they will continue uh, to follow, and that you know they are essentially. They are becoming the premier antitrust watchdogs in the world, and I think that's that's a good thing for us. You know, uh, I think that's a good thing for everybody. Um, so let's hope they continue doing that. And as for uh, uh, Sun buying uh, IBM buying Sun, man, that's just weird. I, 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 it's kind of like that means that they buy another SIF server. <laughs> so I'm, I'm thinking with my Samba hat on here, you know, because they had Sun of a SIF server in the kernel, uh, which I think is rubbish, but. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. That's just, uh, but in, but it's only Wall Street rumors right now. Uh, Wall Street Journal rumors, and and you know something, these kind of rumors have a way of actually de- destroying any um, uh, any actual reality behind it. So even if it was happening, um, there's been so much um, opinion about it that it might now not. Um, but I, I don't think we ever had to worry about Microsoft buying Sun because antitrust competition authorities would would simply disallow that. Microsoft will never be allowed to buy a PC maker, I think, and, and Sony's a PC maker. So, you know, because uh, at that point, then you really do have Standard Oil <laughs> controlling everything. So as, as I point out there, um, elephants can learn new tricks. Um, and, you know, if you're old enough, IBM used to be hated and feared just as much as Microsoft is today. <laughs> and now Microsoft, uh, now IBM is a, a very, you know, respected and happy and friendly member of our community. And they do a lot of great things. They, they pay for our hosting landing, for instance. So, yeah, they do a lot of scummy things with patents, but who doesn't, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's what corporations do. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I really do hope that Microsoft... My feeling is that Microsoft have to go through the same kind of pain that IBM went through in the, in the early to mid-'90s, um, but eventually they'll come out on the other side. They might not be a completely free software company, but I think they'll be a lot more free software friendly. Uh, so it is our job as good outstanding citizens to help them through this pain and to keep kicking them when they do dumb things, um, which I hope I've done today. So any any other questions or comments? Yeah. Can I just make a comment about Julie Brooks? Sure. Uh, she will be leaving in November because her term ends, and it's, it's a terrible loss because she's great at destroying the uh, hindering monopolies, <laughs> but uh, we don't have to worry too much because the monopolies, they hate her whole department, not just her. Ah, so, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know if you heard that, but Nelly is leaving, but the, her, the whole department is just as despised. So that's wonderful. Yeah. So uh, any any other comments, questions? All right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Hacker Public Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.